Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week... We are grinding our way through the Listerdale Mystery Collection once more. We You can tell are... Kemper's enthusiasm right now. <laughs> Could you tell by my choice of verb there that perhaps this is not my favorite among the Listerdale Mystery Collection, but it is written by Agatha Christie, so we are committed to covering it. So let's just get right into it. The Golden Ball. Catherine Brobeck, tell us a little bit about the publication history on this one. First Published in the Daily Mail on August 5th, 1929, under the title Playing the Innocent, which is a really weird title for this story, frankly, but we can come (laughs) back to that. And then, of course, it was published in the Listerdale Mystery Collection in June 1934 in the UK. And then as the titular story in The Golden Ball and other stories all the way in 1971 in the U.S., All right. So let's just jump right into our breakdown here. And we will begin as we always do with the victim, except that there really isn't one. Yes, we are in a fun, flirty Agatha Christie adventure story where everyone seems to win and live tiresomely ever after. (laughs) Perhaps we can say that if there is one who has to be singled out as a victim, it is Ephraim Ledbetter, who is a wealthy employer with high standards for his nephew, who he has employed out of the kindness of his heart, his his dead sister's son. And um, that nephew is is a no-show. If he were alive today, I think Ephraim would be raising a fist to the heavens about those darn millennials. Right. I think that sounds exactly right. (laughs) All right. As is so often the case, when there is not a victim, there really aren't suspects either. So let's just skip right over that category and talk about the world as it appears to be. So um, George Dundas is wandering about the city in London sullenly uh, because he's just been fired from his seemingly posh office job where he works for his rich uncle. And the reason for the firing is he basically called in sick or it's a little unclear. It seems maybe like he just pulled a no-show instead of even calling in sick on a weekday because he felt like wandering around London instead of being in his boring office. And I mean, I will say this, you know, as a darn millennial, I certainly (laughs) kind of do feel that. On the other hand, you know, not a great look for George. I did appreciate the fact that his uncle says, well, that's what weekends and bank holidays are for. And he's like, yeah, but everyone else is off on those days. So I want to be able to enjoy London when, you know, it's not totally crowded and I can actually see things. I totally appreciate that. Personally, and there have definitely been times where, like, I have taken a sick day because I would just rather like do errands when things are open. Absolutely, we all have to have our Roman holidays every (laughs) every now and then, (laughs) every once in a while. Apparently, though, it might seem like George does it more often than not. Is the implication? Yeah. Anyway, his uncle told him that he wasn't grabbing the quote unquote golden ball of opportunity. And then they got into an argument and then George was fired. So whoops. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of the opening to the girl in 
the train when we had another yes, yes. young man fired by his older employer, who I believe was also a relation. Very similarly jocular beginning to a Christie adventure story. Right. I suppose George could have wandered out of his firing and gone to a pub or whatnot, but that's not what happens to George because George apparently is ridiculously lucky. So what does happen to George Kemper? Well, conveniently for our George Dundas, a beautiful girl in a beautiful sports car drives by him pretty much at the very second he exits from this office and is just idling at the curb. And Mm -hmm. I'd like to pretend that he knows her because it seems like they do. They're so familiar with each other from the get-go, but he only knows of her because this is a society girl whose picture has been printed many times in the newspaper. So either George is extremely handsome, this society girl is a lunatic for just picking up a complete stranger and uh, inviting him into (laughs) her car, or both. It really seems like it might be both. It is bizarre. I mean, she picks him up. Right. She just says, get in, and he gets in, and she drives away, and we just go from there. Right, and she pretty immediately asks him if he'd marry her. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, also an interesting choice, but it turns out that he's actually very familiar with who she is because she's a socialite named Mary Montresor. Montresor, you say? I do. This is now the third time we have had a character with the last name Montresor in a Christie story we've covered. Let's take a little trip down memory lane for a second. Earlier in this very collection, Catherine, of the Listerdale mystery, in Jane in Search of a Job, when our titular Jane had to register under an assumed name in the course of her adventure, she Mm -hmm. registered as Miss Montresor. And then, of course, in One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, we had a character named Helen Montresor, two S's instead of one, but still. And that also turned out to be an assumed name. So in both those other stories, Montresor or was not a real name. I suppose it it is a real name here, although this might support your theory that she's a lunatic. Right. (laughs) This is just totally not a real person. Yeah. Either that or Christy was a little, I don't want to say lazy in writing the story, but perhaps she wasn't putting in all of the elbow grease that she put into, say, and then there were none in Five Little Pigs when she was writing this uh, this, this little uh, charming story. Story. Uh, fair enough. So we find out from a passing newsstand, convenient also, that Mary Montresor apparently has just become enfianced to the Duke of Edgehill. And when asked about it, she says, yeah, she has, but she really only did it to see if she could do it. And she actually is not particularly interested in him. Seems like a bad reason to accept an engagement, but then again, I also wouldn't pick up strange men off the street corner and invite them into my car. So I suppose I am not Mary Montresor. I'm smelling the heavy, one might argue, putrid scent of a manic pixie dream girl here. Oh, for sure. For sure. I don't even want to own anything until I can find a place where new things go together. Not sure where that is, but I know what it's like. It's like Tiffany's. Tiffany's? You mean the jewelry store? That's right. I'm crazy about Tiffany's. 
This is a pert Christy heroine. She's just so quirky and she's so interesting and she's so cool. She's a lot. As the kids would say. She's a lot. And I also love that Christy doesn't even bother describing her. We're just told (laughs) that she's beautiful. And then she says, the description is that of the illustrated papers who produced a portrait of her at least four times a month. It's like insert face here. (laughs) Again, perhaps not putting her all into this story. That may or may not become a running theme of my commentary in this episode. Right. Well, it's a little, it's a little bit one of those stories where you're just like, wait, did I not? read a page of this? Did did I miss Are these pages, are there two pages sticking together here? Nope, that's it? Okay. Yeah, it very much seems like you keep skipping a page of this story uh, because what she does next is that they decide to go on a jaunt um, out of London. Yes, they do. Because that that makes sense. And so they're basically driving into the country to look at dream houses. Do not allow yourself to be taken to the second location. It's like, George, don't go to a second location. No, not ever. Not ever. Yeah, this is like a Dateline serial killer special. Lovely young couple just starting in life, out on their date in a 1959 Chevrolet with those sweeping tail fans. They wound up dead. We are kind of going there. But um, they find an excellent country house. And it's basically everything that you could want from an excellent country house. Often those places are like really overrated. But not this one. It allows her, again, to not actually describe the house whatsoever. This is what she writes. On the brow of a hill in front of them, there nestled a house of what house agents describe, but seldom truthfully, as old world charm. Imagine the description of most houses in the country really come true for once, and you get an idea of this house. (laughs) I.e., I'm not telling you what this looks like. Just figure it out. <laughs> it's, it, right. it's charming. It's a, it's a, that's actually a charming description of the house and very funny. Yeah, I actually liked that. That's not any knocks against that description. It reminds me of one of my favorite descriptions of anyone in a Jane Austen novel. I'm pretty sure it's when Marianne from Sense and Sensibility is introduced. And Jane Austen writes that when people spoke of her as being beautiful, the truth was not violated as much as it so often is. i.e. she actually was beautiful which is like such a perfect Jane Austen quote but this is the house version of that I like that that's a good comparison so Mary though decides because this is a perfect country house they have to go look at it right because anybody who is trying to harm you wants to get you to an isolated place where they can do that without other people seeing or knowing it of course That I also understand. I mean, I understand George wanting a holiday when no one else is taking a holiday. And I understand going to look at a house for fun. Although what I don't understand is going to look at a house that isn't for sale for fun. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is exactly what they do. So George rightfully is concerned that they'll be, you know, trespassing. But Mary, again, Manic Pixie Dream Girl. My name is Clementine, by the way. I'm Joel. Hi, Joel. No jokes about my name. Says that if anyone asks them, they'll say they thought it was the home of a Mrs. Pardonstanger. Because sure, that seems like a real name. She's kooky, that one. (laughs) She's a real card. Yeah, just, just came up with that name off the top of her head. Off the top of her quirky little head. And when they are almost immediately caught by a butler as they're peering through the window, to George's shock, the house actually seems to belong 
to a Mrs. Pardonstanger because he says, oh, sure, I'll show you right to her. Please come inside. There's nothing for them to do except to follow the man in. Right. So they meet Mrs. Pardonstanger, who is immediately joined by a man. And then that man pulls out a revolver and holds it up. Of course he does. Um, Pulls it up to George. Although, you know, honestly, if I had some weird trespassers leaning up into my windows and uh, telling lies, I mean, I'm not saying that one would pull a revolver on them, but you would perhaps be a little suspicious of them. It's the stand your ground law, which is is a controversial one. When you actually trespass in someone's house in many a state in the U.S., you have a lot more leeway in terms of what you do to that person than outside of your home. Scary thought, but Mm -hmm. um, anyway, they're standing there with a revolver held on them and then they're pointed up towards the attic so they can be tied up. And on the way up, George waits until Mary is safely out of the way and then he mule kicks the man down the staircase and (laughs) so the man goes flying behind him goes tumbling down the staircase he ends up thrown and presumably unconscious it seems at the bottom of the stairs and then George like climbs on top of him and grabs a revolver away at this point the fake Mrs. Pardonstanger because we assume that you know something is up here runs away Mary is really terrified, mostly that George is actually going to kill their attacker. But finally she gets him away. She says, you know, we don't want, you don't want any part in this. We have to get away. We have to get away fast. And, you know, they escape relatively unscathed other than their harrowing experience. This is where we come to an end of the world as it appears to be, because when they're in the car, there's this kind of back and forth at first in that George wants to investigate this further and not let it go. He's he's sort of mm-hmm. like a dog with a bone where he says, well, OK, we got out, but we're not going to just let this go. I mean, who were those people? I want answers. And Mary, all of her pluck and spirit just seems to be gone. And she's like, no, 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 no. Let's just leave it alone. Leave it alone. And it's just clear that something weird is going on here. And finally, Mary realizes that she's going to have to come clean. And this is where the curtain is lifted and we see what is actually going on here. What What is happening, Catherine? Well, funny story. That was her house, which she owns. That was her butler. And that was her hiring of an actor named Rube Wallace, who was actually apparently a pretty well-known tough guy in the pictures. <laughs> Her terror at George almost killing him was really terror that he was actually going to kill a guy she had hired to fake attack them. It's like <laughs> he mule-kicked James Cagney down, down like a full well, flight of right. stairs. Right, right, exactly. Come out and take it, you dirty yellow-bellied rider. I'll give it to you through the door. And left him unconscious, and then they ran away. She better be giving him some extra payments for, you know, doing that. I hope he but, has good health insurance in whatever actor's union may have been around at that time. I'm a little worried. Yeah, me too. Me too. And then here's the worst thing. It turns out that she does the same thing to every guy she's interested in as a test to see how they'd react in a life-threatening situation. And how do they they fare? The answer may surprise you. They don't fare so great. Apparently, (laughs) this is the first time in nine and a half tries that Mary and her date haven't ended up tied up in the attic. And then Mary inevitably has to get her own hands out of the constraints to free herself and the gentleman. (laughs) 
And it is funny because George, of course, asks what anyone would ask when Mary says that she's done this to nine and a half men. Who was the half? Inquired George with curiosity. (laughs) Bingo, replied Mary coldly. And Bingo is the nickname of the Duke of Edgehill. Hey, at least it's not Bimbo. It's at least a step above Bimbo. So he apparently was so craven in however he reacted to this setup that she's not even counting him as a full man. Elbow, elbow. A little bit of uh, gender normative humor there, but, you know, it's the 20s. (laughs) Well, I mean, the entire idea that she says is behind this is that, well, you could be married to somebody for years before you ran into a life-threatening situation. And what would happen then? She says the only things that you ever know about men when you're dating them is... Getting a um, cab in the rain. Yeah, if he's good at getting taxis on a wet night and knows how to dance. Right. And George is basically like, well, those are both valuable skills. And she's like, oh, no, 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 they are, but... Yeah, she says, yes, but one wants to feel a man is a man. And then as so often happens in these Listerdale mystery stories, Christy pulls out a quote and George quotes absently the great wide open spaces where men are men. And I couldn't find where that quote is from, although when I was Googling it, there were a lot of newspapers from the 20s and 30s that also had that quotation and seemed to be quoting it in a somewhat jokey fashion. It's just sort of standing in for that notion of men being real men in the great outdoors, Iron John, etc., etc. Yeah, so what's most mysterious to me is that rather than very politely asking Mary to drop him off at the nearest corner, George, (laughs) and saying, thank you very much, so wonderful to meet you, please do not call me, ever. (laughs) Yeah, this was like a Tinder date gone terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. He instead uh, starts pushing the point that, well, I obviously fared the best out of any of the men who you tested in this way. So you're going to marry me, right? Right. And what's right? And she says, well, are you going to get done on one knee? Then to make matters even weirder, George says, well, no, he doesn't believe that men should kneel to women, <laughs> which... Oh, boy. Uh, it's like, and, and this is a point in the story where I was like, how did I get here? I know. Why am I reading this story like, with, with these two this, people in it? What's happening? The, it's like everything is so weird up until this point. And then you read that and you're like, okay, you literally no-show your job. You got into a car with a stranger. You almost killed a man. And now you're not willing to kneel to women because... That's not what men do. Yeah, it's this weird childish standoff that they then have. And they both obviously want to get married to each other since... They're both insane people. They're both insane people. So honestly, they can have each other. They deserve each other. But they are at a standoff here, a standstill, until... George goes to a fruit stand. More fructiferous tomfoolery happening in the Listerdale Mystery Collection. Thank God, because I was really missing it after um, (laughs) a fruitful Sunday. I'm really glad that we're here again. And he buys Mary an apple and then engages in some witty, I'm using air quotes here, banter about Adam and Eve and the apple. Then when he is dropping her off, he at least does have the courtesy to go around to open her door when he's dropping her off at her house, whatever. Although here's the weird thing about it. It's her car. 
Oh, this is true. I guess he parked it and then he's getting out of the car and opening the door for her. And then no, she's... that's what I thought. But I also had to read it twice because I was like, is he dropping her off in her car? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, he's not really so much dropping her off as, I guess, parking her car for her outside her mansion. Right. But he slips in the mud just as he is opening the door on a banana peel. <laughs> since he had also bought a banana at that fruit stand, thereby putting him accidentally on his knees in front of her. And she gleefully accepts his marriage proposal at that point. She says, whenever we argue, you can say that I asked you to marry me, but I can say that I didn't say yes until you went down on your knees. So we're good to go. And it's like, oh boy, I fear. It's going to be healthy. This This is going to be very healthy. We're back to manic pixie dream girl land. We are not. Groupies. This is Penny Lane, man. Show some respect. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are band-aids. Anyway, we get a little final scene, Catherine, and what happens. So George shows up at his uncle's house, and his uncle believes that he's there to ask for his job back, naturally. And what he's really there to do is to tell off his uncle and tell him that he did seize the golden ball of opportunity because he walked out of getting fired and he walked into 20,000 pounds a year and a beautiful girl because that's how much income Mary has per year. So, you know, his uncle's like a little taken aback, but I guess the blessing here is that he no longer has to have George as an employee. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful for the uncle that he doesn't have to deal with this nephew anymore. He seems like a nice, a nice older gentleman. He was going to give his nephew the job back, give him a second chance. And George mentions that this was all done by a judicious expenditure of tuppence and a grasping of the golden ball of opportunity. And then Mr. Ledbetter asks why the tuppence, since he is financially interested in that piece of information. And George replies, one banana off a barrow. Not everyone would have thought of that banana. And then he inquires as to where he should get a marriage license. So what we realize is that that banana peel was no accident. George did that to give himself an excuse to get down on one knee and thereby have a successful proposal of marriage accepted by his love, Mary Montresor. And as I said before, they lived tiresomely ever after. The end. <laughs> it's just, do you think that that's one of those marriages where they go on honeymoon and then you never hear about it later and it turns out they got an annulment? Yeah, like immediately. They lasted like one night. <laughs> right, exactly. They got married and then it was like a day later and it was just annulled. Yeah, I mean, we're not giving Christy any leeway here because she's doing her fun flirty thing, which she's done before. She's not doing it any worse here than she's done it in other stories which I think we've just perhaps been more in the mood for. And I think it's also at this point a tonnage thing because we've read so many of these and they're all doing exactly the same thing that I, at least for me, I just don't have the patience for them that I did, I think, in some of the ones that we read earlier on in this podcast. So I just start rolling my eyes immediately when I see that it's one of these sorts of stories. And perhaps that's not fair, but that's what's happening here. Well, I don't mind the fun flirty of some of the stories. It's just that this one is bizarre. I mean, I meant what I said earlier, that it feels reading it like you have missed a page. Yeah, 
she's trying to be screwball and charming and she's sort of pulling it off, but it's at the expense of these people just seeming like humans. It just, (laughs) what they do doesn't really make sense at all times. And it's just bewildering and annoying. I kept thinking back to poor Rube Wallace and how he had literally been left alone, having been knocked down a flight of stairs and left unconscious. (laughs) like that's just that's all i could think about even at the end as they go back to london and it's not like anybody is like phoning up to see if he is okay well i guess his was it his wife who was playing mrs pardon stinger but she ran out of the house yeah, I mean, one would one I think would hope that she would return and see if he was okay. It's, well, I mean, there was a butler too, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. There was a separate butler. The only other thing I noticed in this story, and something I've been meaning to mention for a while, is that Christy relies so often on this dialogue descriptor of coldly. Have you ever noticed this? When two people, usually a man and a woman, are bantering, usually romantically, one of them will pretend to be miffed or irritated by what the other one is saying, and they'll reply coldly to something (laughs) that the other said. It's just she uses it so much, and she used it here. She uses it in her mysteries, even. We're actually currently reading The Moving Finger, which is our next novel, and she definitely uses it there as well. And I noticed it because I was reading these two sort of back to back in the same day. It's just a, she has certain little crutches, you know, and this is definitely one of them. As someone who likes to respond, you know, like an ice princess. (laughs) (laughs) Tommy and Tuppence were often responding coldly to each other's quips and jabs as well. I mean, it's funny because it seemed like the more appropriate word would be dryly, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I know exactly what she means. It's the... It's the... It's a faux-aloof thing that one does, right? It's the verbal equivalent of of narrowing your eyes. Like, you know, when someone narrows their eyes and kind of shakes their head a little bit to indicate displeasure, but in a joking way, that's what the coldly thing does. But she just uses it a lot. That's all. Yeah, it definitely happens in this story. Uh, The story exists. We can say that much. It certainly does, and we are one story closer to the end of the Lister Tale Mystery Collection. It's really, so. you know, what's really sad to me though is I used to be delighted when we got a Lister Tale Mystery. Like I know, but we've felt... had so many, we had so many stinkers in a row now. It's just, it's over. Yeah, it's a little bit crushing, dear listeners, because I used to say, "Oh, we have a Lister Tale Mystery coming up. Like that's going to be exciting. It's going to be something yeah. different. Oh, it will be unusual." Yeah, and now we really are just grinding. Finding our way through them, but we're almost done. That is the golden ball. Next week, we will be covering from the Listerdale mystery, the Rajas Emerald, our second to last story within the collection. And you know what? I'm going to say that I'm excited for it. I'm keeping an open mind. We shall see how it turns out. The fact that the word Raja and Emerald are in the title does not make me think that it's going to turn out all that well. But again, open mind. It could be completely thrilling. It could be completely thrilling. This is true. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think about the Listerdale mystery as a collection overall, or this short story specifically. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. You can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha, and our Instagram handle is all about Agatha. And we would really love it if you took a moment to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.